Hello, my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick Toolbox, and happy upcoming New Year. Before I start sharing with you what I intend to do today, I have an announcement to make. Next week, you will hear my interview with Wim Hof. If you do not know who this person is, uh, you are really up to a great, very special experience. If you do know, you're probably looking forward to it as well. If you want to reach me today during the show to make a comment or ask a question on the air, you can call this number 888-874-4888. Again, 888-874-4888. And if you want to email me, my email is peter, number 1818, Reznik, at gmail.com. New Year is around the corner, my friends. You know, I grew up with the New Year's tree in the Soviet Union, where I'm coming from. There was no religious holidays. Religion was no-no. Uh, whether you were Christian, Muslim, or a Hebrew, or any other tradition, you celebrated the biggest holiday of the year, New Year. And we all put up at home our New Year's tree. I have actually very good childhood memories of decorating the tree on the 30th of December. And we gave each other presents. You know, and I thought uh, the other day, actually, what present could I give to my newly acquired friends, my audience, you ladies and gentlemen? And here what I came up with. By the way, till I realized that the new year was coming, I did not plan to do it. I wanted to talk about something else. But now I decided that I will give you what I believe to be a special gift. A simple tool that may help you to enter the new 2021 being better equipped in dealing with what every single person is challenged by, regardless whether they're aware of it or not. The tool of taming the voice of the debater within. I created this tool many years ago, and I had a lot of feedback about it. So here I will share it with you. Did you ever experience uh, this of being in the great mood after a nice evening and then suddenly cringe about something you said or you did? Uh, do you feel sometimes just when everything is finally going the way you want, you suddenly become anxious? Is it going to last, you say, or something will go wrong? You become scared of losing something that you barely had a chance to appreciate. Or do you ever go through days of having nothing good to say about yourself except how inadequate, incompetent, or deficient you are? Intellectually, you know you are all right. You are aware of your accomplishments. You know you have good friends. They are your friends for good reason. And yet there is something in you that is saying to you, you're no good, never were, never will be. What is going on? Why cannot we just enjoy our lives and appreciate each moment as it comes? What is it? 
I am about to tell you what it is. Because every culture knows about it. Every culture speaks about it. Every culture has developed techniques to combat it. But no one knows how to become totally free of it. Because it is impossible. The sages of all cultures recognize that the it is indestructible. It was, it is, and it will be. For as long as human beings are endowed with will, with freedom of choice. We can talk to ourselves, we can work at subduing it and run our own lives, or it subdues us and runs our lives for us. Through sacred texts, myths, and images found in, in night dreams or in or various cultures, its many appearances have been identified. But regardless of what it looks like, its essence is always the same. The essence of it is the negation of life in every possible form. The essence of it is to constantly, deliberately moving away from is, also known as the truth. Just let's pause and think about experiences that you may have had. That something inside of us that is always negative. The Hindu tradition offers one of the best images, portrayals of the it, Shiva. Shiva is one of the three main gods of Hinduism who symbolizes the primal rhythmic energy which animates the whole universe. Shiva dances and all things come into being and pass away. The three arms of Shiva, remember this image of, of Shiva standing on one foot and three arms, right? The, the three arms represent the three aspects of the cosmic process, creation, maintenance, and dissolution. Shiva's left foot, his left foot is raised in the movement of the dance, that movement that perpetuates the continuity of life. But for stability, Shiva needs strong support for his right foot. Now look, you can look up in uh, on the internet, look at Shiva's right foot. It stands firmly on, not on the ground, but on a small dwarf. Surprise! With one foot in the air and needing strong support, why to stand on a dwarf? Why not to stand on the ground? Because the dwarf is it. The dwarf's energy is the it. As the Hindu tradition teaches, it's man's forgetfulness of God and our true nature. The dwarf looks meek and helpless under the powerful foot of Shiva. But if the Lord of Dance were to relax his vigil, the dwarf could grow strong and dangerous. If the dance of life is to go on, our inclination to forget who we truly are must remain under the foot of the Shiva, under firm foot. Mahatma Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, 
Mother Teresa exemplified those in whom Shiva was able to stand on top of the dwarf. Adolf Hitler, one of those in whom the dwarf was standing firmly on top of the Shiva. Most of us are locked in this ceaseless struggle with the dwarf. Sometimes we yield to its power, negativity and criticism of the present, attachment to guilt or regret of the past, and the false glitter or anxiety about the future. Other times, quieting the voice of the trickster for a short time, we allowed glimpses of the bliss and fullness of living in the easiness of the moment. So, why is it so difficult to defeat it? Because the it resides inside of us. It is a part of us. Its very existence depends on us paying attention to its voice. It knows us better than anybody in the world. It's Yetzirah, as Hebrews call it, the evil inclination of forgetting our relationship with the Creator. And although we also have inside of us the Yetzirah, the inclination for good, the voice of the serpent is very powerful. And here is one of the major reasons. In the struggle to gain mastery in life, and attain inner and outer balance, each of us has to become, what do they call in English, jack of all trades, right? That is, we must learn the skills of how to eat, to drink, to go to the bathroom, to walk, to talk, to take care of our body. Then perhaps, you know, as we grow up, to drive a car, to sing, to interact with our co-workers, how to be a son, a friend, a brother, a sister, a wife, a neighbor, a negotiator, a caretaker, the list is endless. We all learn those skills to one degree or another, but it takes time and energy. It does only one thing. Its full attention is devoted to one thing only, getting to know one person, you. Its entire energy is spent on mastering only one one expertise, convincing you to listen to its voice. That is why I have named it the debater. When we feel weak and scared, the debater yells at us and threatens us. When we feel strong and confident, the debater lures our attention with admiration and the glitter uh, of the future victories then inadvertently drops a phrase or two that creates doubt. One way or another, sooner or later, as long as we allow ourselves to become engaged in this interchange with the debater, we lose. Because we know it. We are living with what if I had to, uh, I never will, I always should, if only I should, maybe, why didn't I, how could I? We know all that is coming from that voice. I am ugly, this is too big, this is too small, this is working, this is not working. All stories, all the voice of the debater. The debater seduces us 
into judging life rather than being with the experience of life itself without realizing when it starts we are criticizing ourselves or others consumed with guilt or regret about the past frightened by making up stories about the future we are cut off from fully experiencing the present with its unlimited possibilities for growth and change it's easy for the debater to command our attention that's the incredible thing most of the time we're not aware of how we slip into its clever inviting and sticky traps of blame anger resentment envy judgment guilt fear doubt self battery megalomania uh, my good friend and a brilliant psychiatrist dr vivian lent says you have no control over going remember i told you that uh, experimental psychologist said that the thought has a speed of one 150th of a second of course we have no control over going boom and we're already in it we only notice what is happening when we are actually in the experience but what within lin says even though we have no control over going we do have control over coming back that is once we become aware of being engaged with the debater it's our responsibility to take control but how does one take control over something so all-knowing so skillful so powerful here is how the debater has one achilles heel one weakness there is one thing that the debater absolutely needs in order to use its skill of debating in order to take control over us what do you think is it it is time no matter how quick sleek and convincing the debater may be no matter how suggestible and vulnerable we are time at least a short period of time is necessary for the debater to suck us in to a debate it only takes a moment for us to be sucked in ever and ever again into the logical and seemingly reasonable net of arguments here is the way out do not give the debate a time with no time it has no power i have developed a following simple quick and extremely effective technique when used consistently this combination of awareness will and imagination can subdue the debater i almost said i believe can subdue but it's not true i don't it's not just believe i have experienced it being true in my own experience and that of hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of people who gave me feedback about this technique so step 1 give the it a name preferably the name should be no more than one syllable step 2 close your eyes say the name out loud and see any image that pops into your mind you might see the face of the debate 
some of my students find that once it appears, it it can be a shifting thing that appears each time differently. And for some, it's the same. Others find the debater appears uh, as some blob, another one is, as a being, maybe human being, maybe a relative. It does not matter. Once you said, closed your eyes and pronounced that name, the thumb image will pop. Even if it's a dark, dark spot, okay, that's what it is. Step three, anytime you find yourself being critical or negative in the present, regretful or guilt-ridden about the past, fearful of or in a fantasy world about the future, recognize the experience as being the voice of the debater. Step four, at that very moment, you say in your mind, oh, it's you, and name the debater. Step five, see the face of it, if you can, then see yourself pulling the string. Like, you know, remember one of those old fashioned toilets and flushing the debater with the avalanche of water down into the center of the earth. Step six, go right back to whatever you were doing in the present moment. Some students find it possible actually to omit step five and go right to step six. The whole process must take no more than five seconds. You know, I gave you all these six steps, one after the other, but it's really boom, 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 boom. This is it. The best is two seconds, no talk. That is crucial. Some of my students who were habitual self underminers found themselves in beginning doing the technique uh, in the beginning four or five hundred times a day but honestly that's not too bad if the rest of the time you can live in peace and balance after all 500 times a day and i exaggerated a little uh, 500 times multiplied by by three seconds what is it? It's not more than 25 minutes. Is it a big price to pay? Here, I want to repeat something I said in the beginning of this talk. But it is an essential element of this work. Please don't trust me. Trust your experience. The only way you will know if this technique works is if you try it out. Test it for one week but with an absolute commitment. When you get tired of uh, after a few hours, a few days, uh, you rest and then go back to it. The most important is you give it a try and see what happens. If you stay with it, you might find with time, not only will the debater bother you less and less, but you will be able to become aware of its present and its intentions quicker and quicker. And one day, just as you find yourself about to grant your attention to the voice of the debater, you will know at once who is bidding 
for your life and you will smile. And as you do, the debate will disappear into a thin air. Now, it's all good. After I came up with this understanding of the technique of how to deal with the debater, I received confirmation from so many people that it actually worked again and again. But, but the question was bothering me within my own mind and from some students. And the question was, why would it be necessary for God or nature, ultimate reality, unified field of consciousness, whatever you want to call it? <coughs> Excuse me. Why it would be necessary for God <clears throat> to create something with this inherent self-destructive mechanism? <coughs> Excuse me. Everything else in nature is geared only toward growth and construction. Every cell supports the lives of other cells and every neuron fires at the right time and at the right place. Every blade of grass thrives to grow, even breaking through the cracks in the cement of the pavement. You've seen it. The little bird eats from the teeth of the alligator and at the same time serves as a dental hygienist to the big fellow. Uh, and even a fallen leaf decomposes only to become food for the tree that grows a leaf. And I was thinking, how can it be that that thing is inside of us? How are we the only creatures in, in nature that are created with something so self-destructive? And then I remembered the Bible. At the end of each of five days of, the, of creation, God says, and it is good. And at the end of the sixth day, after creating a human being, God says, it is very good. That which is very good was born with something inside which is not good at all. This seemed to be a, a major production floor, something that constantly undermined the very existence of that which is very good. It just did not make sense. I kept looking for an answer. Frankly, I was bothered by this question for years, maybe for a decade, till I came across the following Talmudic statement. Talmud, I already told you what it is. The statement said, do as Satan does, not as Satan says. Interesting. Do as Satan does. Isn't it that a at a kind of a call for Satan worshiping, for evil deeds? Of course not. The explanation followed in a typical Hebraic way through a story. Once there was a king who was aging and wanted to know if his son, the prince, was worthy to become a king. So he, he called his most beautiful, one of his most beautiful, most devoted and most trustworthy concubine. 
and shared with her his concerns. And he asked her to go to the prince and do everything she could do in her power to sexually seduce him. He then called his son and told him, my son, the following month, I give you the reign over this kingdom. You can do anything you wish except one thing. You cannot have sex. And of course, discourse, the discourse in Talmud goes, when the concubine tries to seduce the prince, does that mean that she hates the king or the prince? Of course not. She is a devoted servant of the king. She wants to, the prince to prove worthy of being a king. She wants the king to be reassured and happy that the prince is worthy uh, to become the king. And she will do her best trying to seduce the prince while hoping that he passes the test. The same is true for Satan. Satan does what Satan does. Satan does not doubt God, but Satan doubts the integrity and devotion of men and will do everything to test them, to lure them into following their personal will rather than the will of God. So do as Satan does, not as Satan says, means do as Satan does, be a devoted servant of God, not as Satan says. Do not listen to his stories. They are there to just test you. The wisdom of this story brought me to understanding that the debater is not an evil impulse within us that seeks our destruction. Rather, it is a part of us that propels us to grow by creating obstacles and detours along the way, having the opportunity to choose life, peace, and connectedness with God, or that which is opposed to life, joy, peace, and happiness. I also found an analogy to the debater, that, that opposing power in nature. Every living cell has a positive and negative charge. If both poles become positive or both become negative, the cell dies. We need the debater to keep going and growing. It's not a part of us that is evil. It is a part of us that challenges us to make the right choices. All you must do to be the debater is not to try to beat it, not to resent it, and not to argue with it. Remember the debater's weakness. One thing that the debater absolutely needs in order to use its skill of debating, it is time. With your increased awareness of the reason for the debater inside of you and its role for your growth, as soon as you notice any negativity, any judgment of yourself or others, any anger or any thought or thoughts that are not life-enhancing. Simply say to yourself, oh, thanks for the reminder. This is it. You don't even need those six steps, remember, that I described. This is kind of the next level of mastery. When you say, oh, thanks for the reminder, of course, that means thank you, debater, for reminding that 
right now I'm privileged to be tested. I understand that my negative thoughts are damaging to me and all that I believe in. They appear only to challenge my commitment to following God's will. Therefore, I choose not to waste my life and my energy on fighting the evil. I choose to strengthen the good by refusing to fight with negativity that you represent. But you don't need to say that. You simply say, oh, thanks. Thanks for the reminder. It's a long statement. So just be aware of what it means when you say that short word. Oh, thanks for the reminder. After having made this statement, simply go right back to whatever is, knowing that you always are the best you can be. If the outcome of your best is not what feels right, simply make another choice. There are no failures, only experiences. If you adopt this attitude, the debater has no power over you and you are free to live in the now. The debater succeeded in testing you and you succeeded in passing the test. By the way, those, again, who are interested in the spiritual aspect of it, I want you to think about the time when Moses comes to the burning bush. Remember? And the burning bush is telling Moses, go and your people are suffering, free them from slavery, ta, 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 ta. And of course, Moses says, thanks, but no, I'm, I'm tongue-tied. I'm not good at speech. And after all, it's not my business. And, you know, God is persistent and he talks Moses into doing it. But Moses says, wait a minute. But when I go, they will ask me, who is that God? What is your name? And God says to Moses, my name is Acheyeh Asher Acheyeh. It's incorrectly translated from Hebrew as I am that I am, which is cannot be because there is no verb to be in the present tense in Hebrew language. So Acheyeh Asher Acheyeh means I will be that I will be. But that is even more confusing. Then who is talking to Moses? I will be that will, I will be. No, think about the brilliance of it. Because while the bush is talking, from the time the bush started talking to the moment he ended with that phrase, already the world changed. You know how much you changed since I started speaking? You were constantly breathing, exchanging with the environment. Atoms inside of your body was, were moving. So what God basically was saying is, I am that which is in the process of becoming. And we, you and I, in image and likeness of God, are also that which is in the process of becoming. Not perfect. That's why I want you to deal with the debater and to never judge yourself. No matter what you do, you are that which is in the process of becoming. You do your best and look at the consequences. You don't like the consequences without judgment. Make a different choice. Look at the consequences. You like them, keep doing the same. You don't like them, make a change. You are in the process of becoming. That's all regarding the debater. And now I'm looking at the clock. 
we have more time, thank God. So I will move to a totally different subject. I received an email from one of the listeners with a request. Can you please discuss fate, free will, and destiny as they relate to being co-creators with God? Let's start with fate and destiny. I'm not a specialist on Greek mythology, as we call it today, by the way, but in ancient times, it was really a religion. And fate and destiny played a big role in that spiritual tradition. A hero was destined to fulfill his journey, to slay the dragon, to conquer an island, or to defeat a tyrant. But in what we call Western spiritual tradition, in our tradition, we do not believe in fate. Again, I am not an expert on Christianity and Islam, but from what I know, Judaism, which both of these great traditions view as their foundation, Judaism absolutely does not believe in fate or destiny. Even the concept of free will is a misunderstanding and or mistranslation of the Hebrew text. Free will, I tell you something what free will is. Free will would be like you go for a job and they say, here is the job, you will get paid $1,000 a month. You have free will. You can do what you want. If you want, you come to work. If you don't, your free will, you know, come. You still get paid $1,000. Uh, but it's different with free choice. You have freedom to choose. You go to work and they say, you know, you get paid $1,000 a month. If you come to do the work, you get your money. You also have freedom. You can choose not to come, but you will only be paid for the days that you showed up. And if you choose not to follow the instructions, which you have freedom to do, you will be fired or have other consequences. Remember the word Torah, uh, that is the five books of Moses, uh, or what people call the Bible, literally means instruction. So you get the instruction and you have freedom to choose. It's absolutely up to you what you choose to do. But then there are consequences you live with. Okay, I hope I answered that question. Uh, there is something else I want to tell you um, on a different subject. I don't know how it works technically. It's the magic of technology that I don't understand. But what they tell me at the studio, thousands of people are watching my show. So I want to hear from you people. I want your feedback. Do I talk too much on the same subject or too little? In my introduction to the show, I listed all the tools I utilize in my practice. I told you that it would take a whole hour to talk about each of them. Like, remember, I told you about imagination, face reading, night dreams, will. And here, I already spent two full hours the two previous shows, speaking about the healing power of imagination. I did not cover even half of the subject. 
and I gave you a fraction of mental exercises, not even one of a, one hundredth that I have. And for now, uh, I'm thinking of talking to you a little more about healing power of imagination because I want to give you more. And yet I want to know, do you want me to continue or you want me to go to the next subject? Please write to me. You have my email now. So a couple of more things about imagination. Images that appear to us can reveal to us the truth about what's going on inside of us. Uh, I'm talking about images that come spontaneously as a result of an exercise that we do for ourselves or a guided exercise. So images appear in a literal or symbolic manner. Remember when I gave you an imagery exercise, see yourself being touched on the shoulder from behind suddenly, right? You remember that exercise? Some of you could have seen a friend or an adversary, but a person. That would be a literal image. But someone could have, could have seen a fairy or a monster. That would be as valuable, but presented by your subconscious as a symbolic image. Just keep in mind, whatever comes to you in response to any instruction when I give you exercises is the right image. Let's do an exercise now. Those of you who want to participate, close your eyes and breathe gently. Long, slow exhalations. Nice and easy inhalations. Breathing out twice as slow as breathing in. And see yourself standing in front of a mirror. See sense and become aware. Events appearing in the mirror from your personal history. One event, another event, they just jump up. It's like memories. They go quickly. It's your memories right in the mirror. Know that there are two impulses that govern us as these memories come. One is the power of love and the other is love of power. Through your will, slow down the flow of images or the events in your life. Look at each event and decide which one is governed by the power of love and which one by the love of power. The images of the power of love push to the right, to the right of the mirror till they disappear. And the images with love of power push to the left till they disappear, knowing that you're refining your character and your memory.
when you are ready. Gently breathe out one time and open your eyes. Since you are not sharing with me right now with your experience, I cannot uh, comment about on your experiences. But you can do this on your own. And what you're doing is you're doing the inner work of refining the character and holding on to positive experiences. And as you push something to the left, you inform your subconscious mind that it's the past. It's buried, it's dead. The negative past is dead. It's like going to the cemetery. Once in a while you go to the cemetery, you remember something, but you cannot live in the cemetery. You let it go. How do you change emotional responses? Not all, just those who do not serve you well. This is a whole different discussion. I will definitely have several shows on the subject of changing your emotional responses, refining your character. There are so many attitudes of character traits uh, and uh, visions, responses to life uh, that we have that can produce very unhealthy emotional reactions and therefore to damage our emotional life and our body life. Such uh, emotional responses like guilt, judgment, arrogance, um, it's character traits, jealousy, unrealistic expectations, worry, anger, impatience. Um, I, I'm actually tempted to tell you a little story. I love telling stories. My children actually grew up on stories. Uh, I remember my son, who is a grown man now, once listened to one of my stories. And when I finished, he said, Dad, I heard this story already three times. And I said, so why didn't you tell me? When I started telling the story, and he said, well, I like to hear the story again also. I like that you enjoy telling the stories. But let me tell you the story. It's about anger and Buddha, the Buddha, Prince Gautama. Once Buddha was walking with his students, and um, he was known as a very patient person. And there was a man who didn't believe that somebody can be totally patient and in peace, and he decided to challenge uh, the Buddha. And he came to Buddha in front of many people. He yelled at him and said, you are a stupid man, and Buddha ignored him. Then the Buddha, the, the, the man started uh, calling him a, a coward, and Buddha um, ignored him. And then the man started saying, I curse your family, and you know in that part of the world, it's the biggest insult, I curse your mother and your father. And the Buddha ignored him. And then at some point, Buddha suddenly turned around and said, excuse me, good man, may I ask you a question? And of course, the contender was very happy. Now he could engage the Buddha because the Buddha was speaking to him. And he said, of course, you stupid man, you can ask me any question. And the Buddha said, tell me, please, if one man offers another man a gift and the man to whom the gift is offered, declines the gift. To whom does the gift belong? And the contender said, of course, 
It belongs to the person who offered the gift. And the Buddha said, you're offering me the gift of anger. I decline the gift. To whom does this anger belong? So, uh, usually when we get angry in response to someone being angry, we are injected by poison. Refuse to get that uh, poison. I know you already did an exercise for anger with you, uh, but just before New Year's, and I, I want you to enter New Year with greater serenity, I would like to give you another exercise for anger. Close your eyes, breathe gently and evenly, long, slow exhalations, nice and easy inhalations, breathing out twice as slow as breathing in. And now see a huge and dangerous wave of anger, like an ocean wave, ready to drown you. See that ocean wave. And now breathe out one time and see and feel your legs becoming like springs. And you jump high above the wave. And you are flying now. Look at the wave from above. Your arms are stretched and they become like wings. Fly above the wave. Steer yourself to a safe place. Land quietly. Knowing the wave is gone when ready. Breathe out one time and open your eyes. Do you remember this exercise? Uh, you can do it if you feel anger towards somebody or yourself. It does not matter. It's not a good place to be in. Choose not to stay there. Now, there are many qualities we must grapple with. I just named a few that came to my mind. Each of them requires a separate practice to be transformed. I'm almost finished with my book called Six Pillars of Well-Being. And I identified the 16 different attitudinal challenges we face. It doesn't mean everyone has to deal with all of them, but people have their unique mountains to climb. I originally called them 16 plagues, but my students said, don't call them the plagues. People will be scared away and don't buy your books. Uh, and our attitudes about life is just one of the pillars. There are five more pillars, and each contributes to our wellness or illness. Uh, but we'll talk about it another time. Since we still have time, I'm so glad I can do many things today somehow. Since we still have some time available, I would like to turn uh, back to the subject uh, I brought up last week, I believe, on the subject of consciousness. Uh, which which touched upon when I spoke about imagery being an existential reality in the place of meeting. Because through mental imagery, I believe we can demonstrate and we can experience what the universe looks like. The way the Kabbalists and the physicists understand it. 
by the way, the understanding of physicists and Kabbalists is very similar. In fact, it's my intention to invite one of the to one of my shows the theoretical physicist Dr. Fred Allen Wolf, uh, who in his book Spiritual Universe explains how the whole universe is one mind. Um, we'll see. Um, yeah, I also want to invite the physician um, Larry Dorsey, who wrote the book One Mind. He also talks about these issues. Uh, but let me give you, uh, take you through an exercise. Uh, and it may give you a sense of what it is we're dealing with when we talk about God and universe. This exercise will take a little more time, so prepare yourself, sit comfortably. Make sure that nothing will ring, uh, the telephone will not bother you or begin to vibrate, and close your eyes. Make a decision that you want to know. Mind of God. And now open your eyes and look at your hand. See the texture of the skin. Look at it as if you have wearing binoculars, kind of little pores, maybe hairs. And now close your eyes again and think or imagine that you're examining your hand with a high-powered microscope. First, you use it on a lower level of its capacity. But you no longer see smooth flesh, but a collection of individual cells loosely bounded by connective tissue. Each cell is a watery bag of proteins that appears as long chains of smaller molecules held together by the invisible, invisible bands. Now, using greater power of the microscope, move closer. You are now focusing only on one molecule make it even stronger and you see inside of that molecule the boundaries expand and all you see is separate atoms hydrogen carbon oxygen which have no solidity at all they're vibrating ghosty shadows revealed through the microscope as patches of light and dark You have now arrived at the boundary between matter and energy. Make it even stronger. The subatomic particles making up the atom, whirling electrons, dancing around the nuclear, proteins and neurons, Neutrons. They are spots and dots of matter. They are more like traces of light. 
left by a 4th of July sparkling waves of dark. Now you make the microscope even stronger. You're sinking even into a deeper quantum space. All light disappears, replaced by black emptiness. Far away on the horizon, with your peripheral vision, there, here, you see the last flashes, like the faintest star visible in the night sky. Then another little flash. Hold that flash in your mind, for it's the last remnant of matter or energy detectable by any scientific instrument. The blackness closes in. You're in a place where not just matter, but energy are gone, and space and time. It's total emptiness with little spark here and there on great, great distances from one another. All these little sparks, not only a fluctuation of energy, but consciousness. Welcome to the mind of God. Now you begin to use the microscope in a reverse way. The space closes and you see atom and you see now many atoms floating within the molecules and molecules are closing into cells and cells now are closing into the skin and you see now under your microscope the big pores opening and hairs coming out of the skin and finally turn off the microscope and when you are ready come back into this room and open your eyes that's what physicists who believe in the consciousness permeating the universe and Kabbalists alike think that underlying all matter and not matter everywhere when you look at your arm when you look at your desk lamp the father star of the universe all on subatomic level are nothing but atoms and within at each atom are 10 to 100 million quantums and the space between each quantum is like the space proportionately between Earth and Moon. So we are 99, everything, 99.99% empty space. But those quantums are not particles. They are called by physicists probability or quarks. Those quantums are intelligent. And all that intelligence together, we call for convenience with the word God. Unfortunately, we are running out of time now. 
as usual, I have a lot much to say, but I want to finish our meeting today with the words of my one of favorite poet, poets, um, French poets, Guillaume Apollinaire. Come to the edge. No will fall. Come to the edge. No will fall. They came to the edge. He pushed them. And they flew. And finally, uh, our meeting, our time together came to an end. Uh, I once again want to wish you happy upcoming new year. I hope it will be a wonderful, wonderful year. We went through challenges of this year. Now, ahead of us, a beautiful opening. And the beauty of life is that it's all unknown. Thank you for being with me today. I hope to have your attention next Tuesday. Remember, uh, we'll be airing uh, my interview with Wim Hof. Peace to all who want to live in peace. Adelante, get up to the